Yes, so good evening, everyone. Good evening. Hey, that's it. So, uh, yes, as Pat said, uh, my name is Cameron Blair. Uh, just a bit of housekeeping to begin with. Uh, yes, I am well aware that I have a very unfortunate combination of names. Uh, Cameron, as in David Cameron, and Blair, as in Tony Blair. Uh, this is not deliberate. Uh, I didn't just adopt those names when I came over here as some kind of weird political joke. Yeah. Like if I went to America, I'd call myself Obama Bush or Clinton Trump, something like that. Uh, and no, my middle name is not May, as in Theresa May. Thank you for asking. It's not May, it's, uh, it's Matteo, which is actually quite close, kind of a bit scary. So, uh, as Pat said, uh, I live with Pat, uh, the, the, our Pat, the vicar Pat. And when people find that out, they're like, oh, so you live with Pat, do you? I'm like, yeah. And then they, and then they say, well, what's it like to live with Pat? And they kind of lean in as if I'm about to sort of disclose some kind of secret or something, you know? <laughs> so uh, let me tell you a story about living with Pat. So uh, at, at home, we have a, a TV. It's uh, a TV I brought into the flat, and it has an on-demand on movie account with Amazon. Okay, this is great. You can just, like, scroll through, find the movie that you want, buy it, and it just sort of streams, you know, and then there's a charge to your account. So it's, it's my account, but uh, I'm out one night and I get this call, it's, it's Pat, and he's at home with Emma, and he wants to purchase a movie on my account and then pay me back. Of course, I agree to this, this is a win-win situation for me, you know, he gets to watch the movie, I get to own that movie legally for the rest of my life. So I kind of, yeah, that's fine, and then I hang up. Now, I have to be honest with you, I had pretty high hopes. I kind of envisaged maybe owning a Batman Begins, maybe one of the big blockbusters from the last 12 months, but no. I get home to find that I'm now the proud owner of Man Up, the 2015 rom-com starring nobody. <laughs> this is the IMDb description of Man Up. Man Up, a 34-year-old single woman, Nancy, runs in with a 40-year-old divorcee, Jack, who mistakes her for his blind date. Nancy, deciding to go with it, happens to hop on the most chaotic journey of her life, at which neither of them will ever forget. Hilarious consequences ensue. <laughs> yeah, sounds like a real keeper, doesn't it? Oh, who wouldn't want to own that for the rest of their life, you know? And Pat assures me, like, that it was Emma's choice. But when I got home that evening, like, he's sitting on the sofa watching the TV on his own. I'm like, where's Emma? And he's like, yeah, she went home ages ago. Yeah, don't blame her, Pat. I'd be getting my coat too if I had to sit through two hours of man up. Now every time I log on to my Amazon account, there it is, boom, man up. Like some kind of prophetic word over me, you know. Man up, Cameron, come on. So. Otherwise, uh, living with Pat's great. So now you know. So when uh, Pat asked me to do the speak on the transfiguration, uh, I was like, oh yeah, I know that, I know that one, Pat. That's, uh, yeah. yeah, that's where uh, Jesus takes Peter, James, John, up on a mountain, it's right before his crucifixion, and he, and he prays, you know, Lord, take this cup from me, but not my will, but your will be done. And Pat said, no, that's not it, Cameron. That's like, it's not even close, actually. <laughs> that's uh, Garden of Gethsemane, not even up a mountain. Uh, so I thought, oh, okay, well, I'd better go read the passage. So I have the right passage now. Uh, don't worry, the training wheels are firmly on. The uh, first aid kit is on standby. 
Now I'm just going to pedal my little legs till I either fall off or ride into the duck pond at the end of the park. So this year I've been really fortunate to uh, study at a, a theological college called Cornhill, not to be confused with Oak Hill or Oak Hall. There's a lot of sort of corny oaky kind of names going around at the moment. Uh, I went to Cornhill. Uh, and they, they taught me something that I now want to share with you. So um, if I could have that first slide, thanks, Philippa. Yeah. Anyway, so yeah, so, so they, they said, you know, quite often what we do when we, when we go to, to study the Bible is we read the Bible, and then we go, oh, well, what does that mean for us today? So we kind of go straight across. And they said, instead of doing that, perhaps you could try this. So uh, can I have the next slide? So you read the Bible. Yeah, that's good. And then you ask, what did it mean for them then? The people living at that time, the, the readers of the word then, or Jesus' initial audience. Uh, that's kind of putting it in context. Uh, and then you ask, what did it mean in the light of Jesus? You know, it's sort of like a theological reflection. And then finally, once you've done that, you can then ask, what does it mean for us today? A kind of application. So uh, I'm going to use this as a, just a basic model for uh, examining the transfiguration today. Uh, I'd also like to point out that I drew this diagram myself. <laughs> this is available for purchase after the service for anyone that's interested. All proceeds will go to living space, so <laughs> it's going to go to a good cause. I'm prepared to waive at my normal commission. So in order for us to to figure out what it meant for them then, we actually need to go back to the passage just before the transfiguration. Uh, and uh, I'm going to read that passage out now if you want to follow in the Bibles. It's Mark chapter 8, verse 27. Starting at Mark 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. So, in this passage, Jesus, uh, Peter's worked out that Jesus is the Messiah. Okay? For, for the disciples, this is really good news. This is the, the, the Messiah is, is the person they've been looking forward to, the, the person that would release them or redeem them from this sort of Roman oppression. Uh, you know, a, a, a strong leader that would restore Israel back to its former glory. And here he was, like right in front of them. They could sort of reach out and touch him. They'd look forward to his arrival like a child looks forward to Christmas or like 600 silent disco girls look forward to a Justin Bieber song. That's the kind of level of anticipation that they had. But what they didn't understand is that 
Jesus was the Messiah, but he was the suffering servant. He was going to suffer and die. Their idea was completely different. They wanted the strong military leader, someone who could fight their wars for them, someone like a David or maybe a Joshua that would restore Israel to its former glory back in the days of King Solomon. Not just some weak guy who was just going to get beaten up and crucified. I mean, what kind of leader is that? And Peter in particular just couldn't get his head around it. And you, you know what? I'm not sure we would have done any better. I don't know. Uh, imagine if uh, during World War II, Winston Churchill had come out and said, look, the only way we're going to defeat Nazi Germany is if I personally suffer and die. I mean, we would just think that was crazy, wouldn't you? You, you know, t- tuning into the radio in 19... You know. <laughs> we will fight them on the beaches. We will fight them on the landing grounds. I know it doesn't sound like him, just go with it. We will fight them in the fields and in the streets. And I must personally suffer and die. You know, people would be like, what? Afterwards, Churchill's talking to his like, war council. So guys, what do you think? Mm, I don't know. Like the bit about the beaches, that's good. I think that's got some leverage, it's going to run and run. That's a great soundbite. The whole bit about suffering and dying, I don't know, just didn't really do it for me. What about this? What about this? Hitler must suffer and die, Hey, eh? What about that? That's, that's a better one, isn't it? You can have that, Churchill. You're going to have that, Hitler, suffering and dying, yeah. You know, that would have been a lot better. And so in verse 32, we find Peter trying to talk Jesus out of it. Look, Jesus, look, we, we all gave up our jobs to be here. I gave up my job as a fisherman, and I was pretty good at it too, you know. Like, I don't know if you appreciate this, Jesus, but back in these times, fishermen's a pretty big, it's a pretty good job. This isn't like year 2000 when all the fishing stocks have been depleted, you know. This is what, what are we here, 30 AD, AD, whatever that is, I don't even know. Well, it's your death, is it, Jesus? See, there you go again. You're always on about your death, you know? <laughs> All this talk is suffering and dying. It's just a real downer. I mean, look at the guys. Look at John the Beloved's been crying. James has gone to his tent, won't talk to anyone. <laughs> doubting Thomas is doubting himself. You did that. <laughs> you know? Haven't you read self-help books? Try and be a little bit more positive. <laughs> you know, he just couldn't get his head around it. And hence Jesus' rebuke. Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. So to summarize this section, the disciples represented through Peter's views thought that uh, the Messiah, Jesus was the Messiah, that's good, it's a good start. But they didn't understand what kind of Messiah he was. They thought he was the strong leader, but he was the suffering servant. They didn't understand that he was divine, they just thought he was a good teacher. And uh, Peter takes Jesus aside, tries to talk him out of it, and uh, Jesus rebukes Peter. So that is the context at which we arrive at the transfiguration event. So now let's read the transfiguration passage. Uh, I'm going to read from Mark. Uh, Transfiguration event is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, not John, despite the fact that he was actually there. I don't know why he didn't. Maybe he just thought, well, the other three guys have got it covered on the fourth gospel. They're probably tired of... Parchment's very expensive. I'll write about something else. I'm not sure. So uh, I'm going to pick it up in uh, Mark chapter 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up on a high mountain 
where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah, Moses, Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, they were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. So I have a, I have a Bible teaching mentor, uh, someone I go and who I've been learning a lot from. And when I told him I was going to be speaking on the transfiguration event, he asked me what I knew about the passage. And I said, yeah, well, I'll tell you what I know about the passage. Like, it's, it's one of the few times, or it's the only time, I said, it's the only time that the miracle happens to Jesus himself. All the other miracles in the Gospels happen to other people or objects like fishes and wine and that sort of thing. And I said this with quite a bit of confidence and swagger because I knew it was true, right? I knew it was true because I, I just read it on Wikipedia a couple of hours earlier. And uh, my, my mentor said, oh, okay, without much hesitation, he said, well, what about the virgin birth and Jesus' death and resurrection? Were there not also miracles that happened to Jesus? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> Maybe I should start looking to the Holy Spirit for inspiration rather than Wikipedia. Funnily enough, he agreed. So putting aside Wikipedia and looking at this passage, what is the main idea or the main truth that we can take from it? I think it's this. Jesus' identity is the divine suffering servant Christ, and we must listen to him. It's kind of three parts. Jesus is divine, that is Jesus is God. He's the suffering servant. He must suffer and die for us, and we must listen to him, particularly as teaching that he must suffer and die for us. So how do we arrive at these ideas from the passage? Well, first of all, there's the dazzling white clothes. I think it's very clear this is a miracle. Uh, that's why Mark says, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. You know, it's not just that Jesus has access to advanced kinds of washing detergent. They're not new clothes, you know. This is a supernatural dazzling white. So what's the significance of this? Well, I think the disciples quite likely, having knowing their Old Testament, hopefully, would know about Daniel's vision. Daniel has a vision in uh, 7.9, which I'll just quickly flip to. As I looked, thrones were set ablaze. The Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, and the hair on his head was white like wool. So uh, I'm from New Zealand, so I'm a bit of an authority on wool, and, uh, <laughs> and I'm also like my dad was like a, an agricultural consultant, so I've seen a lot of wool, uh, and when you wash it, it does go, because it's a bit dirty when they shear it off, because the sheep are they're a bit dirty, but when you wash it, it does go really white. Uh, so, you know, what, what it, and I think, you know, that, that perhaps uh, Jesus' dazzling white clothing is a nod to this vision, uh, where the Ancient of Days 
was clothed in snow white. The, the, the Ancient of Days, that's a, in, in the book of Daniel, that's another name for God. The implication being that Jesus is the Ancient of Days, that Jesus is God. Secondly, uh, there's the appearance of Moses and Elijah up on the mountain. Uh, why those two? I think it's likely a very deliberate choice. You know, I, I don't think it's just that you know, Abraham and Joshua weren't available. They weren't there going, well, what do you mean? Well, who is available? Moses. Okay, fine, we'll have Moses. Right, yes. Who else have you got? Eli- okay, yeah, Elijah, fine. No, we're not upset. It's just we've got some big Abraham fans in. We've, kind of, we've been saying he was going to be there. It's just, you know, it's a bit misleading. You know, I don't think that's what was going on. I think, he, I think you know, Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. There we've got the two core pillars of the Old Testament there. And I think their appearance up on the mountain with Jesus is to say, you know, it's, the, this is, it's Jesus to, to which the law and the prophets bears witness. It's to him that the law and the prophets are fulfilled. Furthermore, both Moses and Elijah had mountaintop experiences themselves. Uh, Moses, it was Mount Sinai, and, and Elijah, Mount Herub, where They had mountaintop experiences where they spoke directly to God. Now here they are again, on a mountain. But they're not speaking to God this time. Who are they speaking to? Yeah, they're speaking to Jesus. So again, the implication here is that Jesus is God. Finally, oh, and notice too, before I come to finally, that... Um, uh, Actually, no, I've jumped ahead of myself. I am on to the next bit. Uh, yeah, finally, to make things really clear, a voice from a cloud says, uh, you know, this is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. There are the main ideas. There's that main idea in that one sentence. To be the son of God is to be divine, is to be God. And listen to him. Listen to him about what? Well, we get that from the context of the surrounding passage, that he must suffer and die. And notice too that God doesn't say, listen to me, but he says, listen to him. That places Jesus above God. But the only way that can be true is if Jesus himself is God. Again, it's another nod to the idea that Jesus is divine. In the Old Testament, it was always God who spoke from a cloud. God went before Israel in the desert in a cloud, Exodus 13, 21. That's just one reference. There are other ones. Uh, spoke from Sinai in a cloud, Exodus 19, 16, and filled the Holy of Holies with a cloud, Leviticus 16, 2. So here is God speaking from a cloud again. Now think about this. In the Old Testament, God spoke from a cloud to Moses to give him what? To give him the law. Here is my revelation. This is the old covenant. This is my word. I give authority to this. Now he speaks from a cloud again on a mountain. To give what? Authority to Jesus. Here is the new revelation. I give authority to him. He is the word of God. Unfortunately, Peter doesn't get it. uh, And uh, he calls him rabbi in verse 5, which is the name for a teacher of the law. And a Jew wouldn't call God rabbi. So, you know, there's a first clue that he hasn't understood who Jesus is. It's good for us to be here, he says. Let's put up three shelters. One for you, one for Jesus, one for Moses. Let's stay up here in this glory. Here Peter's putting Jesus on par with Moses and Elijah. 
which we again know is not the case. Jesus is above. So again, it's a, it's a clue that Peter hasn't understood who Jesus is. The Greek word for shelter is also the word for tabernacle, so it's, it's likely to refer to uh, the tabernacle in the tent of meeting and in the temple. Uh, I think it's very clear that Peter wants to honour them in this moment, uh, to stay up in this glory, to enjoy that glory. Uh, I th- you know, if it was today, I don't think we would probably go for the, t- you know, the shelter. We wouldn't see Prince... Well, look, there's Prince Harry. Let's go build him a shelter. That probably, that probably wouldn't happen. We would probably... Be, if it was today, Peter would be something like, you know, oh, it's good for us to be here. Let's all take selfies and put them on Facebook. That would probably be the equivalent. Let's build three selfie sticks. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Then God rebukes Peter from the cloud... Only in the previous chapter that we read, like, Jesus is rebuking Peter. Now God's waiting in. No, Peter, you do need to listen to him. He does need to suffer and die. It's not you that is going to save yourself. Only Jesus can save you. And this dovetails nicely into what the passage means for us today, the application. In my small group, we're all about the dovetail. Uh, Harry Campbell, who's one of the leaders of the group, basically cries heresy unless there isn't at least one decent dovetail in the, in the teaching. He's, he's speaking next week, so I'd come expecting a lot of dovetails. Uh, so what does it mean for us today? Well, for, foremostly, we need to listen to Jesus. Uh, we need to listen to his teaching that he must suffer and die for us. Because I think we can all be a little bit like Peter. And we try and talk him out of it. No, Jesus, I'm, I'm actually already pretty good. I have a great job, or I have a great family, or I have a great partner, or wife, or husband, or boyfriend, or girlfriend. Uh, you know, I have great friends. I'm actually doing all right. And when we do that, we lower Jesus' role to that of, a, of, of the Christ, to, to just that of a good teacher, a rabbi, which is what, you know, what a lot of people out in the world believe that's all he is. Just a good guy with a lot of wise sayings. Like Peter, we call him rabbi when we should call him Lord. But when, uh, we, but when we accept that we can't do it ourselves, that it is only through believing and being saved by God's grace, a gift not earned but one for us through Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection, that is when we're truly listening to Jesus. Now, some of you might be thinking, okay, Cameron, uh, so Jesus is God. Yeah, I've kind of got that. That's good. Uh, I can't do it myself. I need, I need a savior. I need someone to die and, and to redeem me. Yeah, I've got that too. You're kind of preaching to the choir here. And I am well aware, particularly with members of the worship team still here, that I am both literally and metaphorically preaching to the choir. Uh, what have I got for you? Well, uh, I do have something for you and something for me as well. Because even if we're across all of this, I still think that we can be like Peter. Because when uh, Peter met Jesus, he had very preconceived ideas about who Jesus was. He had a very, you know, he had, he had a, his mind was set in a certain way. And when he was confronted with the real Jesus, you know, he, he chose to reject the real Jesus and just and just keep on believing in the kind of Jesus he wanted, the Jesus that suited his needs, or what he thought suited his needs. You know, and I think we can do the same. When confronted with the real Jesus, 
we often reject the real Jesus and we just choose to believe in the Jesus that suits us, what's good for our lifestyle. Uh, for me, uh, it tends to be a Jesus that suits my current yeah, lifestyle and worldview. And my Jesus is really concerned with grace and love and only occasionally concerned with the pursuit of holiness. My Jesus is all about not being bound down by legalism and rules, which is great. Uh, but sometimes my Jesus lets me use that as an excuse to live perhaps a little bit more of a liberal lifestyle, liberal lifestyle than what is beneficial. My Jesus is uh, sometimes concerned about uh, the plight of uh, the poor, those that are suffering, spending time with sinners and bad people. But when I read the real Jesus, he seems to spend a lot more time than I do with the poor, with the sinners, with those that are suffering. So what about you? Are you like me? Do you have a different version of Jesus? How close is it to the real Jesus? Do you, do you even know? Um, or do I even know? Uh, there's only one way we can really find out that. And that's uh, by reading about him and seeing what he did and how he reacted, what he prioritized, what was important to him. And then it's just daily decisions, isn't it? It's just allowing that to influence the way that we react to other people, the way that we view ourselves, the way that we view God. I could also recommend uh, a book by Philip Yancey called The Jesus I Never Knew. This is a fantastic book. It's a, it, j- it just helps strip away some of the unhelpful baggage that we bring to our idea of Jesus. And I read this book quite a few years into my Christian walk, and I was surprised just how much untrue assumptions I had about Jesus, how much of the truth of Jesus I'd kind of missed or I just didn't see because I, I was kind of within my own kind of culture at that particular time. And finally, I think it, it can just be as simple as just thinking about what we prioritize in life. You know, cause, and to give you an example, I'm, I'm well aware that Jesus spent time with the poor people, with those that are suffering, with the sinners, with the bad people. And when I look at my own life, I don't seem to put as much emphasis on that. You know, we have to be honest with ourselves. If, 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 all our, if all our friendship groups are just other Christians, you know, if we're just spending all our time with our Christian buddies or other people that are just like that, like us, like middle-class white people, for example, then maybe, you know, we're not really listening to God. And, uh, you know, this is an excuse to go out on a big bender with your non-Christian buddies because when I see Jesus in those moments, he doesn't compromise the integrity of who he is in, in God. You know, he's, he's there, he's in amongst them. Um, and people love having him around. That's, amazing, that's the amazing thing. They don't feel at all judged or, um, or pressured to change, the, or change who they are. Well, I think some of them did change who they are, but it's, it seems to be out of a response of the love of God rather than a sort of a judgmental condemnation. And that's uh, tremendously challenging for us. I think for me, that's kind of like the Holy Grail. If I could work out how to, how to spend time with people, the sinners, the bad people, without them feeling judged, and yet they love having me around. Like, like that's, that's like the pursuit of, that, you know, that's the most, that would be such a great thing to be able to achieve. That's what I sort of, that's my ambition. 
To do that, I would be really manning up, so to speak. So yeah, so so yeah, I leave I leave you to think about that. And uh, you know, are we listening to the real Jesus, or are we just listening to the version that suits us? Uh, and there's hope, you know, there's great hope here, because Peter, he he. For a long time, he listened to his own version, but he eventually broke free from that, listened to the real Jesus. Uh, and, you know, that, that's a journey that it might be a process for some of us, but it can start, start here tonight, right now. So, yeah, I'm back to Pat and... Uh